Y'all, we all got weaknesses. It's okay. Just acknowledge what those weaknesses are and be willing to confront them. Even when restoration doesn't work, forgiveness always does. Chris, how did you overcome the whole passive husband thing? I led him through it. (laughs) (laughs) There is work for us to do. It is not just sit back and cross my arms and just kind of wait for God to drop the miracle. Hey, y'all, it's Dana Shea. For real faith-based marriage advice, be sure to tune into Real Relationship Talk on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, it has been an interesting couple of weeks for American history. And I don't mean uh, in American history, I mean for the discipline of American history. And in particular for black history in America. Because in the past few weeks, there's been a couple of national news stories that have really brought into question what America actually believes about itself with regard to chattel slavery and Jim Crow. The first one is that uh, the state of Florida has come under fire for supposedly teaching that uh, while slavery was evil, uh, some of the people who were enslaved benefited uh, in their enslavement from the training and the work skills that they got uh, and were able to benefit from that later in life. And this is part of a new anti-CRT school curriculum, so really kind of calling into question. Slavery was bad, but was it like that bad, though? And so that's kind of a question in Florida now. Uh, the second is that uh, President Biden, he recently announced that the government would be constructing a national monument to Emmett Till and his mother. And there have been a number of conservatives who have criticized that announcement uh, as being like this liberal woke CRT thing. And actually, an alarming number of conservatives, including uh, some Christian influencers, have publicly said that they don't even know who Emmett Till is or why he is important. Uh, and whether that ignorance is real or feigned is somewhat unclear, but it's something to talk about either way. So that's what I want to do. That's what I want to talk about today. Uh, in many ways, these headlines, they're kind of just like the latest in a stream of like stories about the culture war. Uh, but at the same time, they reveal something important that I think is important to, to explore, which is like this inability uh, of some Americans and actually many of them Christians to reckon with the collective sins of our past and to honor the prophetic voices that have thrust us forward into a greater sense of justice. And, uh, you know, at the heart of the gospel message is repentance. So it seems like a major issue to me uh, that so many Christians are not only avoidant to our collective repentance, but are even squeamish about admitting that there was ever anything wrong that happened. So that's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth. 
as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. So the past couple of weeks, there have been a couple of national news stories that have really served as a clear example of how a certain segment of America, and many of them within the evangelical church, uh, don't know about the history of injustice against black and brown people in this country, or at least they don't want to know, or they want to pretend that they don't know. Uh, And the first one is in Florida. And Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, he's been waging this war on woke, as he calls it. Um, And this has been part of his campaign strategy, both to get reelected as governor and now he's running for president. Uh, And his strategy uh, in Florida has largely focused on school curriculum. Uh, The now infamous Don't Say Gay Bill, if you remember that, was kind of the launching point for his brawl uh, with everybody woke in the world, uh, including Disney World. Uh, which spoke out against that legislation. And in retaliation, DeSantis passed legislation that would negatively impact Disney World, uh, which will almost surely get struck down in the courts at some point. But there's been a big show. DeSantis has made a whole meal out of it. Uh, More recently, though, DeSantis and Florida kind of generally has been under fire for this new like anti-CRT curriculum uh, that suggests that American slavery was, in some measure, beneficial to the enslaved African-Americans because it taught them valuable skills like farming and blacksmithing. Uh, And so there's been criticism to just that idea that, yeah, slavery was bad, but they they benefited from it in some way too. Uh, And so that's been the criticism. And uh, DeSantis was actually asked about it in a press conference. And he said it would be, quote, totally reasonable to show that some folks eventually parlayed, you know, being a blacksmith into doing things later in life. And by folks, he's referring to enslaved African-Americans. Uh, so and it, and DeSantis, he's kind of like he's gotten into this like news cycle where he's talking about this a lot because people are talking about it a lot. And he's even gotten into this back and forth with Vice President Kamala Harris over this. Uh, and he's basically argued that any criticism against the curriculum is being made, quote, in bad faith. Uh, I haven't read the curriculum, but... I'm interested in how conservatives and Christians are engaging in the conversation surrounding it uh, in a way that um, is maybe uh, not representative of the curriculum itself, but it's revealing of some of the um, underlying assumptions that are troubling, even if the curriculum wasn't that troubling. Uh, And just to give an example, Allie Beth Stuckey, she's this uh, kind of conservative uh, commentator. She tweeted about this. And she said, quote, I can't believe people are still debating the Florida slavery curriculum thing, saying that some slaves benefited from skills they learned during slavery, as Frederick Douglass did, is true. It speaks to the resiliency of slaves, uh, not to the benefits of slavery. Some people on the right are so eager to prove themselves moderate or reasonable or nuanced that they look at any reason to disagree with a conservative. Condemning this line of curriculum isn't reasonable. It's dumb. And yes, it is simply repeating the same silly propaganda uh, spouted by the race-baiting vice president, referring to Kamala Harris. Never mind the fact, by the way, uh, that Frederick Douglass, he did learn to read while he was enslaved, but he was breaking the law by doing so. So that wasn't actually a benefit. 
he didn't learn to read because he was enslaved. He learned to read in spite of the fact that he was enslaved. And then he ran away from that slavery, and there, there was no benefit. I, I just don't understand how that Frederick Douglass is an example of how uh, enslaved people benefited uh, during their period of enslavement. Anyways, she goes on. Guess what? Sometimes God allows you to develop useful skills during your trials. Does that make the trials fun or the injustice you endure just? No. It just means that God can bring good out of evil, and people have an incredible ability to overcome unbelievable difficulty. So the unfortunate thing here, and you kind of see a little bit of it there, there was, there was stuff that was more explicitly racist uh, floating around the internet that I didn't want to subject your ears to. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is that there's this squeamishness among many conservative Christians to call slavery what it was without any qualification or equivocation. And even worse, some are trying to paint an entirely different picture of what slavery is. For example, I'll give you one like kind of atrocious example, but this guy is like a really influential guy within evangelicalism. He's written for the Gospel Coalition. He is, um, you know, he's been in a lot of conservative evangelical spaces as an authoritative voice. His name is Douglas Wilson, and he hasn't weighed in on this Florida thing, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but he has weighed in on American slavery uh, in a way that you wouldn't expect um, anybody of sound mind in the 1990s to respond to it. But he wrote this pamphlet in 1996, Southern Slavery, colon, as it was. I'm going to give you one quotation. It's, it's a little bit lengthy, um, but you'll feel with each unfolding sentence why... I find this troubling. It says, quote, Slavery as it existed in the South was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity. Because of its predominantly patriarchal character, it was a relationship based upon mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. The credit for this must go to the predominance of Christianity— Slave life was to the slaves a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. In spite of the evils contained within the system, we cannot overlook the benefits of slavery for both blacks and whites. Slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war, referring to the Civil War, or since. End quote. So, while most evangelicals in their right mind wouldn't be caught dead agreeing with Wilson here, uh, there's an embarrassingly large number of them that do. And the ones that don't, they're like, well, I see what he's saying. I don't fully agree, but I see what – it kind of opens this door because he's pretty mainstream to these pretty regressive views uh, on slavery uh, in the year of our Lord 2023 floating around on God's internet. Uh, so yeah, that's a thing. Uh, Tamara, what do you make of all of this? I think first it's shocking that we're even having this conversation. Right. <laughs> every time, and this is not the first time this has come up. That's why right. I, I'm talking about it here. But every time it comes up, I'm like, it is truly alarming mm -hmm. that we are continuing to have this conversation. Was slavery really that bad? Right. And the people who are often saying, was slavery really that bad? Are, or our people are it's the worst. Yeah, our white people um, who are in places of authority, who have um, no lineage within their family that have ever been um, subjected to the uh, painful system of enslavement, right? Like people who have absolutely no idea <laughs> what it was like. And honestly, who 
many where it's likely their own family history were the ones enslaving African-Americans. Um, and I think it's even more painful for Christians to be part of this conversation or to say like, look, God made good out of something that was bad. Um, because it was at the hands of fellow people and it was actually at the hands of white Christians. Those were the slave owners when slavery was happening. Um, instead of calling out the sin, instead of calling out the evil, instead of uh, looking to the past and saying, may we never repeat this again, Instead, we're trying to find some kind of a silver lining to slavery. And I don't know why we're trying to find a silver lining. Like, what benefit is it to say, like, look, there was some good there. Um, I most certainly don't agree that there was some good happening within the system of slavery. Uh, to say, like, look, the slaves had clothes and they had food and they had medical care. Like, sure, we were beating them within, like, you know, moments of their life, but at least we fed them. And also, it's kind of a suspect claim that they had adequate food, clothing, and medical care. Oh, to say it was adequate is absolutely untrue. Right. Like, anything that's, that like, you that's understand not the historical system fact to have at been. All. Yeah. 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 Like, if you actually look at um, how terrible the system of slavery was, and we'll actually talk about that a little bit later as you bring up the next um, piece that we're going to discuss on this podcast that actually shows how brutal and inhumane slavery was in America. We had recently heard someone talk about, um, and you'll have to like make sure that I'm saying this correctly, uh, someone who said that when Hitler was coming to power, he actually had some of his people come to America and like scout out what was happening and how we had the ability to... Um, like control so many massive groups of people for such a long period of time. And part of that was uh, not only the system of slavery, but then what came after that, like even Jim Crow laws and all these other aspects where we were still very much controlling a large amount of the American population um, and making them feel less than like they were not the superior race. And uh, this person who was talking about that said that there were actually some aspects that even uh, as that information was taken back to Hitler, that some pieces of what was happening here in America were not even exercised in Germany because of how just inhumane and brutal it truly was. And you just think like if Hitler was coming to like take pointers from us, like that's a huge issue. And there is nothing good within the system of slavery that we can look back on in our history and like give ourselves some kind of a round of applause about or say like we were good in this way. When it comes to reflecting back on history, what we need to do is see it for what it was, no matter how painful that is for us now. Now, that's not to say like every person who is white and American and evangelical now is some bit responsible for what had happened, but we are most certainly responsible to look back at the past and call it out for what it is, which is sinful and inhumane. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to, you know, everybody compares everything to Hitler all the time. Uh, but if you if you look again to World War II and post-World War II in Germany, and if you go to Germany today, 
it's highly unlikely that you will meet anybody who will say, was the Holocaust really that bad? You know, there were some benefits, you know, they were in factories and they learned skills there. Like that would be laughed out of the room, not even laughed mm-hmm. out of the room. They would be punched in the like, face out of the room Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Germany where these things happen because they have uh, put forth a really concerted effort to say like, this was like the worst thing that this nation has ever done is possibly the worst thing that any nation has ever done. And uh, we're not going to forget that. And we're not going to let anybody question that that's what happened because we're going to pivot from that as much as anybody can pivot from anything. But we don't have that same attitude here. We have all these counter narratives of Douglas Wilson saying that there was no racial animosity. The whole thing was racial animosity. Uh, I mean, that's originally that's how we we justified it is that we can enslave these people from Africa because, you know, they they have dark skin and we have like this um, kind of pseudo scientific uh, belief that um, there's a a racial hierarchy based on biology, which is absolutely not true. But it would the whole thing is racial animosity and um, trying to base that in some kind of fact when the pragmatic thing was we just wanted cheap and or free labor. Uh, to build our economy, and and we did that on on the backs of enslaved people and through the brutality of chattel slavery. Right, and to do anything less than say this was absolutely the worst part of America's history is to essentially um, dishonor the people that went through slavery and the legacy of their families now it's just such a slap in the face for them. And it's also a way of continuing to say, we still don't value you. Right. We still, we're still not don't sorry. See, yeah. yeah. We're still not sorry for what we did. Um, because we didn't really do anything that bad anyways. Um, I mean, we gave you food, like, you know, just going on and listing that. that I mean, quote. that's the Again, kind of stuff just, abusive people say, right. At least I feed you. Yeah. At least I gave you clothes. At least I gave you healthcare. Well, at least like, that's what every person living in America should have um, just as bare minimum, right? right? Like that doesn't mean we- That doesn't mean being, benevolent. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're being treated well. That means like you're just being given the very basic necessities in life. And so on the counter of that to say like we withheld the basic necessities of life, like that's not anything to cheer on either. Right. So I think- um, Using the quote that, uh, the first one that you read from, oh goodness, what was her name? Uh, Stucky. Yes. Where she was like, and look, God makes all things work out for good. That was like a really that, weird spiritualization. It was a weird spiritualization. And um, to take God working something for good as this heroic mantle for white Christians now is just a really weird way to use the Bible and weaponize it and say, like, look, even God supports this because he turned something for good. Um, anytime you see God working for good, it is in spite of the evil of humanity. So because of that, we need to call out yet again what slavery was in America was an evil aspect of humanity, period. Right. Nothing else. We don't need to say anything else We about don't that. need to say anything else. We don't need to say, but... At least we fed them. At least you had clothes and food and hey, now you know how to farm. And you learned how to, bl- yeah, You're you learned welcome. how to blacksmith and farm. You're welcome. That's so, it's so Well, wild and especially because the people who were very likely the expert farmers 
were the enslaved people. Well, and what do you it think that they came here with no skills, no right. discernible? They didn't know how yeah. to farm. Yeah, they didn't know how to Yet again, build things. Like, they didn't know how to do things yeah. that we, the white people, just yeah. educated them in all mm-hmm. the ways of learning how to survive. Yeah, yeah, it's a white savior all over again. So n- not only was it a white savior in that moment, right? Like somehow trying to justify mistreating somebody by saying, "I'm giving you good skills. You're welcome." It's just so twisted. And even statements like that, uh, that try and find some kind of good within slavery, that try and find some kind of silver lining within slavery, I think even that in and of itself is evil. Yeah. And it's interesting, all the people who are against nuance, why are they getting so nuanced when it comes to slavery? Mm. Something that is not a nuanced issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And again, I just want to reiterate, um, I don't know if the curriculum itself is saying that slavery wasn't that bad. Um, It might, it might not be. My concern was that all of these Christians in reacting to the story are saying that. And that's the thing that I find the most troubling um, just for the soul of American evangelicalism. Right. It's no longer even about whether the curriculum is saying that. It's now about the conversation happening around it, that people are perfectly fine if the curriculum is saying that at all. They have zero issues with it. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's that's bad. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's one way in which uh, American history as a discipline has taken a hit in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the second one is with regard to uh, Emmett Till, who was a very influential figure um, by his example uh, later in the civil rights movement. So I want to talk about that, but um, we'll dive into that in just a moment. What do you do when your world is falling apart? How do you march when it would be easier to stay where you are and die? Join me every week on the March or Die podcast, and we'll discuss that and so much more. So the other big story relating to black history uh, was that a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Biden, he announced that a national monument to Emmett Till and Mammy Till Mobley uh, would be constructed. And so Emmett Till, if you don't know, and his mother, Mammy, they were incredibly influential figures in the civil rights movement and really in a way that you would never want to be. So in 1955, uh, Emmett Till was 14 years old and he was living in Mississippi. So he's living in the heart of Jim Crow South at the height of Jim Crow. And he was accused of whistling at a white woman uh, by some folks in the town there. I think they were at like a grocery store or, a, a, you know, the market there. And they accused him of whistling at this woman uh, who was a white woman, you know, basically flirting with her. Uh, but as a result of that, these two fully grown white men came to Emmett Till's home in the dead of night and they abducted him. They tortured him. They mutilated him and brutally murdered him. And Till, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Emmett Till. There's only a couple of pictures that I've seen, but he's a, he's a good looking young man. Right. His body was beyond recognition. Just absolutely horrifying. They had uh, thrown him. I can't remember if it was a lake or a river, some body of water and his body was waterlogged. His face. I mean, this is really graphic. His face didn't even look like a face anymore. Like, it was just absolutely just mutilated uh, beyond belief. And, uh, by the way, the two guys who murdered him got away with, you know, they weren't found guilty of anything. Um, So Emmett Till's mother, Mammy, she decided that she was going to give Till an open casket funeral, basically to show the world that this is what it's like to be a black person living in the American South. Uh, She wanted pictures taken. uh, She wanted it in the papers. She wanted the world to know 
that this is what is happening to us. Uh, and it was that act of bravery that served uh, as an inspiration to many civil rights heroes that came in the next decade or two decades. For example, uh, Rosa Parks, she was later in her life, she was reflecting on uh, the moment when she, she decided not to go uh, to the back of the bus. And basically it was this catalytic moment uh, with the uh, Montgomery uh, bus boycotts. And she said um, in that moment when she was being told to go to the back of the bus, she said, I thought of Emmett Till and I just couldn't go back. So in light of that, that's, he, that's pivotal moments in the life of American history. It makes sense that Till and his mother would get this monument. Uh, it didn't make sense to everybody, though, because somewhat predictably, uh, people thought that honoring Till is some kind of liberal woke CRT thing. So, you know, the old battle drum continues to get beat. Uh, among them was Stephen Wolfe, who is uh, a theologian and author of the book Case for Christian Nationalism. And Wolf, he essentially, he believes that America should have a culture and a government that is defined by Anglo-Protestantism, essentially the kind of Western European Christendom from which the original colonists came. And so he kind of claims that this is not a, a racially defined vision, uh, but it does depend on everyone here assimilating to a certain culture, which is Anglo-Protestant culture, Western European Protestant, ergo white culture. Um, but in casting that political vision, he kind of sets himself forward as something of an expert on American political history and American political theory. I think he has his PhD in political theory, something like that. Uh, but here's what Wolf said following Biden's announcement about Till, uh, that Till monument being put up. And there, there was buzz around the internet when, when Biden made this announcement. And so uh, Wolf, he tweeted, okay, I'll bite. Who's Emmett Till? And then someone replied to him and said, I didn't know who that was either until I just Googled him. Is this bad or something? To which Wolf replied, yeah, I'm supposed to care about some 1955 event that all the libs care about. Their minds are captured. The other dude, eventually he went on to say, yeah, that event plays no role in my understanding of the American experience. And it didn't for anyone up until it was apparently decided that this should be some huge political deal. I reject the model of imputing events with historical significance. And that was a sentiment that has been multiplied in many times in many ways uh, that I don't even want to read um, on this podcast. But I saw them and they were really bad. And a lot of them were really racist. And um, it's just this interesting stance uh, to take that being ignorant of history is somehow the conservative way. So, Tamara, what do you make of this? When someone who has a Ph.D. in American political philosophy denies knowing who Emmett Till is, is he just dog whistling to racism or is he so incompetent that he should not have been awarded that particular Ph.D.? Yeah, it is. Or is it both? I mean, I don't know. It, it's weird that he doesn't know about Emmett Till. I learned about who Emmett Till was in the fifth grade. Yeah. I remember because they put the picture in the textbook and I was horrified. Yes. Yeah. They probably don't have that picture in the textbook anymore, do they? But yeah, I don't I don't know how he is unaware. Um, I definitely think there are people out there who are unaware, but given his degree, it seems a little bit unlikely to me that he's unaware of who Emmett Till is. And it's also concerning the measure uh, to which he completely disregards the suffering of Emmett Till and 
the reality that this was the way many black Americans were living for such a long time. And to some might argue slightly lesser degrees are still living today. Right. Like just the absolute terror that not only was slavery, but then in the century that followed, Jim Crow was absolutely horrifying. That you, that a 14-year-old boy, have you ever met a 14-year-old boy before? I have. Like they are who they are, right? Maybe yeah. he whistled at this woman. Maybe he didn't. But for the, the stakes of that to be so high that he was brutally murdered. Right. And that was just life. Yeah, and nothing happened to the men who brutally murdered him. Like, that was just another day. They're like, well, mess around, find out. Yeah. Like, that is absolutely bonkers crazy. And it makes sense that the publicity that that event uh, garnered, it was not a unique situation, uh, certainly. Uh, That story has been multiplied. But that was just a catalytic event for the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. that um, was pivotal. It was a pivotal moment in in the country becoming awake to the horrors of Jim Crow. And then finally... Uh, just caring you know what i mean yes i mean obviously the people who were being oppressed always cared but the 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 white folks who had been holding the keys of the kingdom finally were starting to to look in and say hey this what we're doing is absolutely wrong yeah this is a huge problem uh 14 year old boys should not be losing their life for this and they certainly should not be um murdered beyond recognition to like even to their own parents right like that is just unthinkable for any crime. I mean, and who who's to say like what he did was actually a crime in the first place, but uh, for any crime to result in that kind of a death is yet again inhumane in the same way that slavery was. And so that's something that we should not be comfortable saying like this is within the history of our nation, but willing to look back at the history and again, call it out and for people to be conversating about it now saying like, well, what does that event matter to me? Why should I care about something like that? Particularly when this person is like supposedly an expert in American politics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It just, I, I don't know. Just an unserious person. (laughs) Whatever he puts forward and he's he wrote a book and it's a very big book it has a lot of pages um but it's very unserious if like that is your level of intellectual prowess that you don't even understand why emmett till is significant to the history mm-hmm. of america to the the history of civil rights yeah. uh to the history of just like humanity like this is mm-hmm. basic christian theology that life is inherently valuable People are inherently valuable, that discrimination of any kind is yeah. horrendous, and that we also have a pretty extensive history in those things. Yeah, and that we be- need that we need to continue to reckon with. Like that to me is just like at the basics of like Christian morality. Like this is this is not complicated stuff. And why is it that we are behind the culture at large? Mm. Every single time this comes up, it's just wild to me. I mean, not everybody in the evangelical world, obviously, um, but a considerable enough group of people that um, it, it constitutes a, a sizable movement within evangelicalism. Yeah, and it is concerning the kind of callousness that comes out of these types of conversations for the mistreatment and brutalization of fellow 
image bearers. I think about a recent uh, National Geographic series I was watching on uh, the Roman Empire and archaeologists uncovering like hidden cities and understanding more about the Roman Empire. This is what you're watching at 3 a.m. while you're nursing the baby? Uh, no, instead I'm making terrible Amazon purchases at 3 a.m. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a, some of those packages. <laughs> that's a real thing. Um, but this like series was just talking about the Colosseum and how the Roman empire was just known for its brutality and it was sort of this, um, like badge of honor that they wore and they were brutal, brutal. They were really brutal. They were nasty. And a lot of it was for minor things that like we would look back and say like, well, that was just such a minor thing that you decided to crucify somebody upside down for, or publicly, um, beat them to death in front of like, hundreds of thousands of people and call that like entertainment. It's just, as I was watching this series, I was thinking like, what was the state of the heart of the people in Rome that were sitting in these Colosseums watching people be like publicly mutilated? Like how was that entertainment and how was everyone just so comfortable sitting there and like, cheering on the death of somebody. And I am not saying that uh, America is similar to the Roman Empire, but I, I do think that sometimes when we have these conversations about our history, I often am wondering, what is the state of our heart as Americans now? We should be brought to our knees. We should be uh, disturbed. We should be overwhelmed with grief about the way that our history treated people. And we should be willing to reconcile that as best we can and willing to um, say like, we are sorry over and over and over again. But instead we're trying to, in some way, like justify what our history did or even like brush it under uh, the rug and say like, it wasn't really that big of a deal. We've moved on. And that's also a bit of ignorance to think that something... Um, that was embedded within our nation was the founding of our nation doesn't have any kind of ripple effects even into 2023 which it very much does but there's a lot of people who even deny that like we just want to think america is sunshine and rainbows and we don't have this massive skeleton in our closet that we need to deal with and uh it's it's just so troubling uh, th that even as christians we want to cover up something rather than bring it into the light. And isn't that the kind of people that we're supposed to be? The ones that want to be in the light right. that bring out the darkness into the light, that bring the sin into the light so that it can be dealt with. And so that we can find redemption and reconciliation. And that is even for our own history as people, particularly our history as people within America is Christians should be the ones that are bringing the sins into the light so that Christ can offer redemption and uh, restore things. We're never going to get to a place of restoration if we don't even want to bring our um, sin and our darkness into the light. Right. And really, I kind of see it as like a crisis of discipleship that the fact, not only the fact that Americans are um, having arguments about was slavery that bad or did Emmett Tilt Matter? Was segregation really that bad? Uh, but really also that people are bringing those assumptions into the church 
and um, are spiritualizing those assumptions because Jesus brings good out of everything and are failing to recognize or uh, admit that there is a continuing legacy that still continues to affect people because of the hundreds of years of racial animosity that was um, reinforced through systems of oppression through, you know, most of American history and only very recently within, you know, the last 60 years, 70 years, have we begun to uh, more extensively um, bring those things to, to better equity, but there's still not, you know, it's still not completely there. How do you think that we can address that as a crisis of discipleship? We, I mean, because at the same time, you know, we don't want our churches to be, you know, protesting organizing centers. Um, but there is a, a root discipleship issue that is failing theologically uh, and which is causing us to fail practically injustice. Um, how do we like, I guess, address that crisis of discipleship in a way that is not like partisan or whatever, but is robustly theological, biblical, that then can give us the tools to, uh, as we engage in the political realm as individuals or as groups, uh, that we're, we're not making uh, an idiot of ourselves and, and, and revealing that we are just absolutely deficient in understanding human dignity. I think you just asked me a really loaded question, and um, I don't think I'm going to have the answer that is going to solve <laughs> just years and years and years of um, mistreatment of people here on this podcast. Uh, but I will do my best to like share my thoughts on what I think movement forward looks like. And I think first, it is important to say... Um, as a nation, we have moved forward somewhat. Uh, we have made considerably. progress. Yes, considerably. Um, so you're being more charitable with saying considerably, and I'm saying somewhat. Well, uh, I mean, we did, when you go back moved... to 1840 and we're saying you can literally own people. Yes, no, to, yeah. Uh, yeah. 100 years later, saying you can't sit at the same table, too much of that has been removed. Yes. But the legacy of these things yeah. and act, some active policies are, are, are feeding mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. continued uh, inequality. Yeah, and I think it might even be a little bit more challenging because it's more subtle now in comparison, right, to what it was when you could literally own somebody. Um, it, it feels the inequity and the um, mistreatment or the, even to call it unfair, feels like um, not weighty enough of a term. Um, but to see what is happening within our society today is a little bit more difficult for people to see because it's not as blatant as it was when you could own somebody or when you literally had a sign over one fountain that said whites only and one uh, and a, a sign over another fountain that said blacks only. So obviously we don't have these blatant like examples of here it is still happening within our society we still have a long way to go they're just more subtle and I think that does make them a little bit more difficult to deal with uh, and it it makes it more difficult for people to see the mistreatment that is continuing to happen in our nation um, so I think for us as a church it's it matters what we say what we say about history matters and the fact that we want to think our theology is somehow separate from our history as a nation is to not 
is to misunderstand that as Christians, everything we do is about God. That's good. Like everything, every discipline that we uh, explore, whether it's science, history, whatever, we are evaluating that through our theological grid. Right. And vice versa. Yes. The How we are viewing those disciplines is then uh, shaping our theological grid. Right. It, and it's kind of this uh, spiral, mm-hmm. hermeneutical spiral yeah. of how we're developing our understanding of the world. Exactly. And to try and parse those out as two separate things is to misunderstand even the way that God has intended for us to function, right? Like our whole life is supposed to be uh, centered on Christ. And that then becomes the funnel in which we view the world and even the funnel in which we view what happened in the past and whether or not those were um, good things that happened in the past or bad things that happened in the past. When your lens is Christ and the the high standard that he has for the way that we treat humans, the way that we value the, the dignity that we give, if that is your standard of all of humanity, as you look back to the past, if you see anything that doesn't meet that standard, then you can deduce that was a sinful thing that was happening. That was an evil thing that was happening. Uh, that was a bad thing that was happening. And so you have to be able to not only take that lens for the current things that are happening, but also as you look back to the history. And so as we talk about what happened in our nation, we have to call it out as what it was and not make the evil um, or the sin of it smaller just because it was X amount of years ago. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think there's... You might be able to like bring those thoughts into a little bit more cohesive statement, but I think first it's important to understand how we view life. <laughs> like... What does God actually say our view on life of others should look like? I think we have that down really, really well for the unborn child. Mm. We understand the value of life when it comes to um, the unborn child. But somehow we, I don't know if we like justify it or if our definition of changes, but after someone's born, we start to make um, reasons why we can mistreat somebody. Right. It's like when the the unborn child is ne- needing protection, we're like at any cost. Yeah. And in a lot of situations after, we're like, well, like we at can minimal justify, cost. Well, yeah. well, that was their decision. Or, well, like that's just kind of how it is. Or, well, they shouldn't have dressed like that. Or, well, they shouldn't have said that. Or they shouldn't have... Um, I was going to say a statement, but it would have really tipped my hand on some views Um, or well, they shouldn't have uh, talked back or whatever. Like we want to justify the mistreatment of people after, (laughs) after they exit the womb. Um, And we no longer want to care about their protection and their dignity and their value with the same passion and drive and relentlessness as we do for life in the womb. Yeah. There's a couple of things that you said that stood out to me. Uh, the first is that after the major civil rights wins, whether it's, you know, the Voting Rights Act, the, uh, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education, basically after segregation for all intents and purposes had fallen, uh, 
um, the white supremacy and the way it works in American culture and American uh, laws, it, it kind of became a lot more subversive. And that's something that I can't remember what speech it was of Martin Luther King Jr. So towards the, towards the end of his life, end of his career, and he was they had won all of these, you know, major legislative and judicial uh, victories. And he himself said, like, now the work's going to get a lot harder um, because what we're going to have to do from here, I mean, you know, toppling segregation, you know, that was a visible win. But now what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go after all of the underlying roots and superstructures that had allowed that to happen. And that work is a lot more difficult. That's a lot more uh, subversive in, in many ways because it, it goes to the structure of how America was founded uh, on white supremacy, even if some of these more visible uh, institutions of it are, are gone. Um, the other thing, I think, in looking at the, the biblical material that we have, again, looking at uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, he spoke a lot out of the prophets, whether it's Amos, whether it's Isaiah, uh, who were talking about justice and uh, talking about the oppressed. Um, and, and he talked a lot about the Exodus too. Like that's a major motif in the black American church is the Exodus from uh, even before emancipation, that was a major motif for them. And then moving all the way through uh, the civil rights movement and into today, um, just the, the black church being able to see themselves in the Exodus, being able to see themselves in the children of Israel coming out of that oppression the question is, uh, can white evangelicals see themselves in Pharaoh? And I think that's the question that is we need to to answer. Um, and I got that idea from uh, a book that's uh, in pre-release by Caitlin Shess. I think it's called The Ballot in the Bible. Um, yeah, recommend that book. Uh, that kind of helped me think through that a little bit. But I think leaning into those, even in just how we speak about things, uh, not from necessarily a partisan lens to start with, but from that theological biblical lens. Um, as you were talking about, like the the first comment of some things uh, within our systems, um, it was easy to like tear down what we could visually see, but what we have to get back down to is like the roots of things. And it just gave me this picture of uh, just the other day I was like pulling weeds and of course the children thought they were being helpful and trying to help me pull weeds. Um, and they just kept like pulling the tops off the weeds and not any of the roots. And what is going to happen is that weed is just going to keep growing. And that thing is just going to keep growing. If you don't actually get at the heart of what it is, and it's going to be stronger. It's going to be stronger too. Yeah. So like aesthetically it looks fantastic. Like our yard looks great. All the weeds are gone, but they're not actually gone. Because the kids just pulled like what you could see above ground off. And um, I can almost guarantee it a few months from now, we're going to have weeds in the exact same spot and they're going to be stronger and they're going to be bigger. And that's just a lot of what is even happening within our own country is it feels good to uh, remove what we can see. It's so much more challenging to get down to the roots of it because it's hard. The roots are stubborn, like they're deep in there. And it's even hard to see how widespread the roots are within our systems. And to deny that there's any roots at all is to completely miss what has happened within our own history. 
Right. And right now I think we're in that season where it is nice that um, a lot of the physical things that you can see have been knocked down, but we're now in the season of our history where we have to get down to like the deep roots and figure out how widespread are they and deal with that, which is far less glamorous. It's far more tedious and it takes so much more persistency and diligence to get every last one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of this boils down to like what story we want to tell ourselves about ourselves. Because really that's the the foundation of our identity, both as individuals and then as a collective group. Uh, And I think that's why so many people want to offer like this whitewashed version of American history that cuts out all these ugly parts. Uh, makes it seem like we're all about liberty. It's like, yeah, we've been all about liberty, but we've been all about a lot of other stuff too. Um, and I don't think it's like, it's not this woke or liberal thing to have a very clear picture about the ways in which our, our country has been shaped by racial injustice. Um, in fact, to deny the injustice of our past, uh, it, it often contributes to us uh, becoming opponents of greater justice in the present. Like those two things are con- like in like very much connected, um, and it's often been said that a problem well defined is a problem half solved. So I think we need to do a lot of work in defining the problem and communicating the problem that this is a problem, uh, and that doesn't mean that we need to hate America. In fact, like the opposite is true. Uh, it's just that we need to love justice even more, uh, and we love justice not just because it's like the woke thing to do, but because God loves justice. Uh, and God loves when we help people who are created in his image experience uh, a greater measure of justice. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kindnessproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.